Hello and welcome to Abimus Papam, episode 208, Pius II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So today's Pope was born Aenea, or Aeneas, Silvio Piccolomini, on October 18th, 1405, to a family of down-on-their-luck Sienese nobles. His family had been on the wrong side of a dispute in Siena and had been forced out of the city and had lost a large portion of their wealth and power. He was one of 18, but only three of the 18 survived to adulthood. Now, we know a lot about Aeneas because he kept a pretty extensive journal, which was eventually published as an autobiography called Commentaries. In fact, it's the only autobiography ever to be written by a sitting pope, as far as we can tell. And it gives us a lot of detail about his life, and more importantly, about why he did the things he did, because he has a pretty crazy life before he was elected pope. Now, to start, Aeneas was caught up in the Renaissance spirit of the age, and at the same time, ambitious for advancement. His family's bad fortune meant that he would have to earn his way in the world, and he began that process by going to law school in Siena when he was 18 years old. But though he wanted to advance, the law was really his dad's doing. It's not his real love. His real love was the new Renaissance devotion to the classics. He spent all his free time reading classical Greek and Roman literature. He gave up his his time. He went without meals in order to borrow, rent, or purchase books that he could read. He would then summarize them in his own notes for access later. He went to Florence to learn Greek and to get in on the Renaissance scene which was developing there, and then added to his passion for learning, however, was not a passion for the faith per se, or or indeed real virtue. He himself wrote in a letter to a friend later in life, I have loved many women, and after winning them, I have grown weary of them. He had at least two illegitimate children during this time period. His dad got a little fed up with the classics and asked him to come back to Siena to focus on the law, and when he returned, the whole world was talking about the disputes over the Great Western Schism, the conciliar movement, and the role of the papacy. And Aeneas listened attentively to the arguments made and started to sympathize more and more with the conciliar side against the Pope. At the same time, the great preaching friar St. Bernardino of Siena appeared on the scene. Aeneas heard him preach and was so captivated that when he went up to the saint and talked to him about the possibility of a vocation as a Franciscan friar, St. Bernardino told him that based on what he was hearing, it was probably the case they did not have a religious vocation. So Aeneas, now a graduate from law school, went out to try and find a job. He traveled around northern Italy, hoping to get a job as a university professor and really as a professional humanist, but he couldn't find anything. But as he got back to Siena, he happened to meet Cardinal Domenico Capricana, the Bishop of Fermo, who was on his way to Basel for the council that was underway there. The Cardinal liked the young man. He saw his sympathy was for the conciliar movement, and he noticed his learning and talent. And in 1431, he took him with him to Basel as a secretary. Cardinal Capricana was an interesting guy. He was the private secretary to Pope Martin V, who named him a cardinal in pectore, meaning in secret. And he was the secret cardinal, but for whatever reason, Martin V didn't name him a a cardinal publicly until 1430. Now, just as a note, this is the first time that the practice of naming a cardinal in secret ever happened. It's still a practice to this day, but that time it was brand new. So by the time he had been appointed Bishop of Fermo, he was announced as a public cardinal, but he, for whatever reason, he didn't come to Rome to collect the red hat. And then Martin V died. And the cardinals refused to confirm him as a cardinal, and he couldn't take place in the conclave. And then Eugene IV also refused to confirm him as a cardinal. So he went to the Council of Basel 
firmly opposed to Pope Eugene IV, and Aeneas, his secretary, soaked up his positions. If you remember from a couple episodes ago, Pope Eugene IV got in a huge fight with the Council of Basel and suspended it in 1433, which the council didn't take lying down. Aeneas worked furiously with the council to oppose the pope and became more and more extreme in his positions, so much so that he outpaced his patron, Cardinal Capricana. The cardinal settled his own dispute with Pope Eugene in 1434 and left the council, but Aeneas remained behind. Aeneas began to work with other bishops at the council as a secretary, eventually being hired by the bishop Bartolomeo Visconti, who was a relation to the Duke of Milan, a major power player in the anti-papal movement. He worked with the Milanese in a plot to kidnap the Pope and force him to acquiesce to the council's demands. But the plot was discovered, and Aeneas then had to hide out from the authorities for a period of time. After things died down, he got a job with Cardinal Niccolo Albergati of Bologna. He went with the Cardinal on a couple of diplomatic missions, including a solo mission all the way to Scotland that had him, you know, tossed about by storms and the making of vow uh, if he survived that he would climb a certain mountain barefoot, and he did all that kind of things kind of hurt his health, but eventually, after all his adventures, he returned to Basel in 1436. When he got back there, he found out that Cardinal Albergati had made his peace with Pope Eugene, which was incredibly frustrating to the even more extreme Aeneas. Aeneas, zealous for the conciliarist cause and making sure that everyone knew it, gained the support of the council itself and worked as the major secretary for the council, as the council itself became more and more extreme. He personally pushed for the election of the anti-pope Felix V in 1436, and he served as the master of ceremonies for his election and crowning. He then entered the service of the anti-pope as his private secretary. So Aeneas now is so far opposed to the pope in Rome that he get, helps an anti-pope get elected and serves it as, as his right-hand man. So how does he go from here to being the pope himself? At this point, he still isn't even a cleric. He's still living, we think, rather promiscuously, and he's incredibly ambitious for advancement. In fact, his lack of chastity was one of the main reasons why he wasn't able to serve as an actual member of the council and as an elector of the antipope. The bishops there at the council would have been happy to ordain him, but he refused because he didn't want to give up his promiscuous life. So how do we get from here to being pope? Now, the story starts to change when Aeneas looked around him and realized that serving Felix V was probably a dead end for his career. No one was recognizing the antipope. The decision to elect him was a serious mistake, and all the movement in the church was down in Florence with the pope and the reunion council that was happening there. So despite being zealous for conciliarism, he was even more zealous for a higher status, and he began to look for another star to hitch his wagon to. Felix V's one real backer was the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III, and as he was traveling through Basel in 1442, Frederick noticed the young secretary and requested that Felix lend him to him to work in the imperial chancery. There at the imperial court in Vienna, his views about the council gradually changed thanks to the influence of the imperial counselor, Kaspar Schlick. The chancellor was more moderate in his understanding of the church and wanted the emperor to show his greatness in the world by using him to solve the dispute between the pope and the antipope. Aeneas began to change under his influence and he began to see the situation of the world around him. He was sent by the emperor Frederick to negotiate on his behalf with Pope Eugene, and in those negotiations he showed his changing principles, working to end the dispute between the Pope and the Emperor to benefit both of them. Now, during his mission, he asked publicly in front of the whole papal court for forgiveness from Pope Eugene, who very kindly forgave him and welcomed him back into full communion with the Church. Longing still for glory and influence, a a glory which was in some part God's, but in some part and a large part his own, Aeneas finally began to change his mind about becoming a cleric. After a couple more delays, in March of 1447, 
he was ordained a priest at the age of 42. Now, we know before his ordination that he was promiscuous, but he seems to have taken the promises of celibacy seriously, as well as his religious obligations. There's no evidence, as there will be with some of the other bishops at this time, that he did not practice chastity that he had promised at his ordination. He seemed to at least take that seriously. Now, with this conversion and new vocation, Aeneas wasn't without friends in Rome. The most important was the new Cardinal Tommaso Parantuccelli. Cardinal Tommaso had worked in the household of Cardinal Capricana with Aeneas and would soon prove himself an important friend indeed, because in 1447, not long after Aeneas was ordained a priest, Cardinal Parentuccelli was elected Pope Nicholas V, and with that, Aeneas's star rose faster. He was ordained the Bishop of Trieste a month after Pope Nicholas's installation in April of 1447, and in 1450, he was named the Bishop of Siena, his home diocese. Now, Siena wasn't very happy with this. The Sienese aristocracy didn't like that a family who had fallen out of favor now had a son who was a bishop. And it got so bad that when Aeneas was named a cardinal in 1456, he was forced out of Siena for good. In August of 1458, Pope Callistus III died, and the cardinals met in Rome to elect a new pope. It was a tough time for the church. Callistus III had been elected after the conquest of Constantinople by the Turks with a mandate to bring a crusade to defend Europe. And the crusade hadn't happened, and now the Turks were marching through the Balkans towards the west. It was a crisis that the next pope would have to address. And the frontrunner for the papacy was the venerable Cardinal Capricana, Cardinal Aeneas's former mentor, but he died just before the conclave opened, leaving the field wide open. The two bigger frontrunners were the French Cardinal uh, Guillaume de Ostroville and the Italian Cardinal Colonna, but neither could secure the necessary majority, and Cardinal Aeneas Piccolomini began to look like an Italian frontrunner. But the conclave was brutal, with the French Cardinal and Cardinal Aeneas trading accusations and insults in public. Cardinal Estouville said in front of the whole conclave, How can Piccolomini be thought fit for the papacy? He suffers from gout, is absolutely penniless. How can he succor the impoverished church, or infirm as he is, heal her sickness? He has but lately come from Germany. We do not know him. Perhaps he will remove the court thither. Look at his devotion to the heathen muses. Shall we raise a poet to the chair of St. Peter, and let the cardinal be go- the church be governed by pagan principles? The Venetian Cardinal Barbo thought he could make a run at the papacy himself, but failed, and at the last minute he threw his support behind Aeneas. It came down to nine against six with Cardinal Barbo's support, but it wasn't enough to close the deal. Then, after the foot was dallied, Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia, important name to remember, shouted out, I vote for the Cardinal of Siena. Then Cardinal Colonna stood up and said, I also vote for the Cardinal of Siena, and I make him pope. With that, he had the necessary votes, and Cardinal Aeneas burst into tears at his election. On August 19, 1458, Cardinal Aeneas Piccolomini was elected Pope, and he took the name Pius II. Now, the first and most pressing agenda item that weighed on the new Pope was the advance of the Turks in the Balkans, and the Pope addressed it head-on. In an introductory speech to the Cardinals and assembled delegates after his crowning, he declared his intention to call the Christian princes to crusade to help defend the Christian nations of the Balkans from the advancing Turkish armies. The plan was to gather representatives of all of Christian Europe in Mantua in northern Italy to plan for the crusade. His other problem was his own previous position on the authority of the papacy. Now, as Pope, he tried to retract his previous statements and increase the authority of the papacy, but it was tough going. He positively declared that you can't appeal to a council over a pope, and that his earlier positions, while embarrassing, were the product of youthful exuberance and not mature reflection. But it wasn't the strongest argument. Nevertheless, in official bulls and discourses with leading conciliarists, he condemned his former positions and asserted the doctrine of papal primacy. The Pope made his way to Mantua and hoped that other Christian princes and rulers would meet him there, 
But unfortunately, no one really showed up. They dithered and waited and sent representatives who really couldn't do anything and were so low level that they were an insult to the Pope. And finally, when Milan arrived, something seemed to happen, but the Pope had to cajole those who did come to stay until they could get something done. His inability to get things done did not dampen his zeal to try and fend off the Turks. After a couple of years of trying to get the crusade going, he finally threw up his hands and said, fine, I'll go myself. After a lot of wearisome negotiations, the Pope managed to get a group of Italian nobles together who would go on crusade if he would. And emphasis on him. He himself planned to lead the crusade. And on June 18, 1464, he took up the cross himself symbolically at St. Peter's Basilica, even though his health was failing, and he set out. As he left Rome, he said, Farewell, Rome. Never will you see me again alive. He marched to Ancona on the Adriatic Sea with about 5,000 men. There was a lot of disagreement among his train, and there was an outbreak of plague in the countryside as they were marching through, and it was hot, and no one was happy. When he got to Ancona, the cardinals all said they were totally against his going on crusade, and his disappointment grew as not many other princes were ready to join him there in Ancona, and there weren't any ships there to transport them, so they just had to wait. And as they waited, a lot of the crusaders left so that when the ships arrived in August, there was basically no army to transport anymore. In the meantime, the Venetians had launched an attack on the city of Trieste, which was a Christian city rather than fight the Turks. The Pope's health, meanwhile, was failing. On August 13th, he received communion a final time and asked pardon for God. And the next day, he asked one of the cardinals for prayers, and then he died. Now, before we leave Pius II, I want to give you a couple of other interesting stories about his papacy. We heard a lot about him as a young man, but his receiving sacred orders certainly began a process of conversion in him. He was frugal as a pope. He wasn't living in pomp and splendor, so much so that someone once complained about what he served at dinner, and his response was basically, what do you expect on the pope? And, quote, I live, for, I live not for myself, but for others. He loved being outside and often held consistories or audiences out in the countryside under a beautiful tree. He was still hungry for glory. He changed the name of the little town outside Siena that he grew up um, to Pienza after Pio, his papal name, and he appointed his nephew a cardinal and gave a lot of responsibilities to the Sienese priests and family members, as was commonly the practice at the time. He was a complicated figure, and an interesting one, and seemingly a, a decent pope. He died August 14, 1464 in Ancona and was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, but his body was eventually moved to the church of San Andrea de la Valle. He was succeeded by Pope Paul II, and we'll talk about him next week. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for listening, and God bless you.